I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Yesterday, Bon Appetit launched its Hot 10, uh, our list of America's best new restaurants. It's online now and in our September issue, which hit stands like this week. Uh, so for the past few years, um, now editor-at-large, Andrew Knowlton and deputy editor Julia Kramer have sort of like divvied up the country and one went to the West Coast and one to the East Coast and they sort of mind melded and then came up with their list of the 50 nominees and then the hot 10 itself. However, this year, for various reasons, Andrew did the whole list himself while Julia oversaw the editing of the package. And so Julia sat down with Andrew to hear about how he figuratively and literally survived weeks and weeks and months and months of eating and hotels and airports and rental cars and to uh, discover what he's loving and not loving so much about American restaurants right now. All right, let's do this. Here is Andrew and Julia. So after two years of working with you on this list and traveling around the country at the same time as you, I left you on your own this year. How did it feel? (laughs) It took me back to a couple years ago when I was doing it on my own and i i'm still trying to forgive you for it oh right right (laughs) (laughs) so typically like at least these last couple years you and i have sort of split up the country so you've taken the south and the west coast Mm -hmm. the the far-flung destinations last year when i was pregnant (laughs) how did you set about on your cross-country journey this year where did you start well because i did not have I mean, you went to a few cities, obviously, to, to help to round things out, your your home hometown of Chicago. But um, that was the difficult thing was, as you know, just the grind and toll that it takes on you physically and mentally. Adam uh, Rappaport actually emailed me a few times because I think he sensed that he was worried about me <laughs> and said, like, it wasn't like, did how's it going? Like, are you finding good places? It was It was about... Are you emotionally and and philosophically and uh, mentally okay? So I I didn't wanna, I knew I couldn't go into it without you like I've done in the past, just kind of like gangbusters, like firing on all cylinders because I would break down and and the self-loathing would start earlier than it usually starts Mm -hmm. when you're on the road uh, doing that. So what did I do? You know, I I did the East Coast first and kind of was strategic going on trains and, and, you know, hitting Boston and Portland, Maine and and down there. And then going down to the South, I strategically hit kind of like Atlanta as my um, center point center point and then from there you know delta goes everywhere out of atlanta so you can kind of hit the south and then the huge trip this year was it was almost four weeks you know the entire west coast and then hitting cities that i haven't been to in a while i know you went a couple years ago last year to denver Mm -hmm. via salt lake and then i went to oklahoma city which we can talk about later Mm -hmm. um and i just for the record just so i don't get a bunch of hate mail it is the most amazing couple months of the year for me just because I've been doing it so long and I do thoroughly enjoy it. But with any great kind of, I don't know, it just takes its toll. Like you mm-hmm. have, you know what it's like. I mean, you ended up in the hospital a few years back, which I always remind you of. <laughs> I think that comes up on this podcast every year. <laughs> because it's amazing that, that yeah. Anyway. So I know you just said that this is a great privilege and pleasure for you and whatever, but... 
Let's just start on a downbeat. What was your low? <laughs> what was your low point on the road? I actually have a text that I I emailed Adam when he asked was asking how it was going. I was in Seattle, Washington, and it was I had already been to all over the country, and then I'd been to L.A. on that trip. I had gone through San Francisco and Portland, so I was like in day. It was like week three of this West Coast trip, and I was. I went and had a crummy meal for lunch and I was just depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was happened to be raining in Seattle and like the cloud level was like you could touch the clouds. It was so low. And I just went back to the room. And I just, I just felt terrible. Like I was like, I can't do this anymore. I didn't have a, a lot of good luck. You know, you know how it is when you're traveling and like when you eat a really good meal, it kind of lifts your spirits and mm-hmm. you get that jolt. But it was kind of like you were in this perpetual just like, uh, just disappointed or you walked into a place. So that was my low point. Just like, and I don't even think I went out that night. I literally stayed in my bed and I walked down to Target and I got like a seltzer water and like a bag of Mike and Ike's. Wow. And I just sat in my bed and watched some bad television. Mike and Ike's, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's your candy of Well, choice? I wasn't going to get anything, and then they just had like one of those pound boxes like <laughs> next to the cash register. <laughs> so, yeah, spoiler alert, there are no Seattle restaurants in the hot <laughs> tent this year. <laughs> so, for people who haven't heard you speak about this before, can you just paint an image of what a day is like on the road? Like, what makes it so grueling how many meals are you really eating yeah so usually i I know you have a different system my system that i've always done is i i literally will make a kind of a handwritten calendar of a specific day where i'm going and then i'll block it off into basically four quadrants i'll have breakfast i'll have lunch i'll have dinner and then i'll have the etcetera's at the bottom those kind of places that you might hit uh, that on off hours or, you know, whether it's a coffee shop or, you know, I don't know, maybe going to a museum, maybe do something other than eating. So, I mean, I used to go crazy and do like two breakfast and two lunches and then like three dinners. And I just physically can't do that anymore. I'm getting older. And I also just mentally can't do it either. So I think this, this time around I was doing one breakfast. I would either run a before or after breakfast somehow just to get some exercise because that always helps with appetite and then i was only doing one lunch like i couldn't do the two lunches anymore Mm -hmm. that was just brutal i couldn't do it and then i would usually hit two dinners and what i what i started to do this year is i would actually go choose ones that were somewhat close by for dinner and i would go to one first and have a drink Mm -hmm. and then i would go to the second place and have a drink mm-hmm. and kind of get the vibe to see which one I wanted to kind of bank on and, and do the full meal experience at. Uh-huh. So then I would go back. Okay, so that is funny because it reminds me of one time when I was on the road and I think I called you and I was like, I can't go on. <laughs> like I just went to four terrible restaurants and I think I texted you some pictures and you um, said to me, you were like, Kramer? you see a restaurant like that, you just turn around and walk out. <laughs> like, don't even eat there. <laughs> so what what are, like, the signs that you're looking for, like, when you're going into each of these spots that tell you, like, okay, this is the place I want to stay for the meal, yeah. and this place, like, I get what they're trying to do, but I can leave now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that first thing, which is the thing that most people complain about or, or that they notice is just 
the hospitality and the service. Like if you walk into a place and somebody is smiling at the door and it seems like, or if it's packed and somebody is helpful about like, Hey, the bars first come first serve. I'll keep an eye out for a, a spot for you. And I think, so that's the Im- immediate thing. If I walk into a place and there's nobody at the front door and it seems chaotic and crazy, I know the difference having done this for a while between, Hey, it's a busy night or, this place is a shit show and you know, it trickles down and then I sit down hopefully and I'll, you know, is the vibe something that, you know, I jibe with and then what does the food look like? I, you know, I'm always that person who, even if I don't have to go to the bathroom, I will go do that walk and just look on every single person's table to see what does the food look like? Does it look good? And then just that last experience is like picking up the menu and you get that kind of visceral reaction. Because I do think, and, and you know this, you have a certain predilection to, to like certain kind of places because everyone has a, you know, a certain palate. But it's also just you can read a menu and know that, you know, if a restaurant that has, you know, goat cheese with beets and then there's a kale salad and then there's some sort of quinoa salad, like I'm looking for restaurants that are doing something besides those things in 2018. Yeah. And what you were just describing reminded me a little bit of when you first told me about one of the restaurants on our list this year, Kefiko, Kefiko in yeah. San Francisco, and just how blown away you were from the moment you walked in from the hospitality of the place. So yeah. was so, that sort of like what earned it its spot on the list? Yeah, so Kefiko is one of those places that I, I had heard about um, because the Two of the chefs had come from a well-known restaurant in New York, the kind of Eleven Madison, the Nomad Group. But what was interesting about it, it was in the Tenderloin in San Francisco. It was it had no street presence because it's on the second floor. So they had this sign and you walk up this area. And it was it was probably the second or third week, which is not a good thing, A for a critic and more importantly for the restaurant when, when yeah. somebody's going in that early. Rarely works out well. No, for for either party. And it was it was packed. I mean, it was three people deep at the bar. It just, it was, I walked up and I saw that and I was like, oh crap. Like, I feel bad for A, this place and B, this isn't going to work out. And I was greeted, there was two people at the front desk and they couldn't have been more charming and helpful. They took your name, they took your phone number and they said, well, you you know, if you want to wait and get a drink, we've heard that a million times. And, and everyone knows who's been to a busy restaurant is that you stand, you know, the whole bar was eating too. It wasn't like a drinking bar. It was like, if you got a seat at the bar, you were eating. And, you know, those are one of those cases where you just sit there and, you know, wait for somebody to make eye contact with you. You know, nobody wants to make eye contact with you. And all of a sudden this, like two minutes after being there, after looking at the menu, a bartender came and tapped us on the shoulders. Like, can I get a drink for you guys? So we ordered a drink, and then two minutes later, he brought it to us. So I don't know that policy, but that was like something that hasn't happened forever. Yeah, that's some Eleven Madison. That's some Eleven stuff. Madison. But but the fact that the bartenders were walking around the bar, and and everyone was looking at everybody like, is this really happening? Like mm-hmm. it was a, an amazing experience. And eventually, got seated after you know thirty minutes. And but yeah, that that first kind of five minutes in that restaurant. I would say earned Kefiko a spot on this year's hot 10 list. And the other thing that really surprised me about your recap of Kefiko is I have never in five years of working with you heard you talk about dessert 
in that way. I know. I hate dessert. <laughs> I hate it. So the pastry chef at Kefiko is Angela Pinkerton, yes. who um, worked for many years at um, Eleven Madison and is also opening a pie shop. Is it adjacent to Kefiko? It's or downstairs. Yeah, it's just right as you take the stairs up to Kefiko. It's just to the right, and and I think uh, it, it's it's opening imminently. And and the cool thing about Kefiko is is if if people go, which you should, try to sit at the, the kind of chef's counter there. It's it's kind of an L-shaped bar. They have a big wood-burning oven, and then they have this huge kind of counter, and you can watch her prepping all the desserts. And that's what's like I started noticing this crostata, which everyone's had a crostata before, but it was filled with citrus. It was grapefruit and, like, caracara oranges that were cooked so warm. Um and that was an accidental crostata for her. She said there just wasn't anything in the market at that time, so she just grabbed a bunch of citrus and did that. And then she has this budina, which is kind of a grown-up chocolate pudding um, that comes with, like, olive oil on top and sea salt, and then it comes with some with some nuts. And it was just the most luscious kind of rich dessert. I think we had, like, three more. <laughs> you know, I, w- I wasn't drinking as much whiskey, on the road. So I, I don't believe that for I, a I second. I blame the whiskey that that's why I started to eat dessert, you know, because hmm. I needed hmm. something to, yeah. Interesting theory. Both of those recipes, by the way, are on bonapetit.com and in the September issue, uh, the crostata and the budino. Okay, so San Francisco, sort of obvious location we hit every year. Yep. The number one restaurant this year is in a city that has never been on our hot 10 list before Oklahoma City so I don't think it's even been in the top 50 our nominees crazy crazy (laughs) (laughs) so how how did you end up in Oklahoma City how did you find this restaurant how did I end up in Oklahoma City I don't that's a good question no one one night as I'm off to do I was deep diving on Instagram and I just got into this kind of Instagram tunnel and just this whole um the explorer tab the explorer tab it is a dark place and I think I re- there's a restaurant in Maimo. Uh, sorry, there's a restaurant in Oslo, Norway called Maimo, which is a well-to-do restaurant, very well thought of. And there was some link that a chef had worked there or something, and then they they had um, tagged them in a photo. And then I, so I click on this tab for none such OKC is their handle, and popped up this plate that was made of ice. And then it had all these little fruits and vegetables on top of it. And it was a, it was a, as I found out, it was a pickle plate and it came with like a a juniper stick that you used as a utensil. And it just kind of piqued my interest. That one photo was kind of etched in my mind. I'm always looking for stuff kind of beyond the, the major cities. Um, and so I, the next morning I remember getting up and Googling none such OKC and trying to find out more about it and usually as you know in our business like we're not we're not like the first ones to 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 say this is a good restaurant a lot of times sometimes we are but a lot of times you know it's it's the 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 restaurant critic uh, national media food media press is is kind of root is a well-traveled one Mm -hmm. but there wasn't anything really about this place there was there was something in Territory Magazine, which is like a local OKC publication, but I couldn't even read the article because they didn't have it. They just had the title, but that was it. And then like I'd read some blog about it, but there was really nothing. So it really piqued my interest. So it was via that Instagram account. So I decided, I was like, well, hell, 
after I leave uh, Seattle, I'm going to take a, because there was no direct flight from Seattle to Oklahoma City. So Mm -hmm. I was like, I'll go through Salt Lake City. And I almost didn't get on the plane because as I reminded you, I was dark. It was dark (laughs) at that point. And I was like, and here I am going to go to OKC where it's already 95 degrees. It's 100% humidity. And I'm just going to be miserable. But I went. And long story short, it became this year's number one restaurant. Okay, let's make the short story a little bit longer. (laughs) So what was the moment when you realized that Nunsuch was going to be your number one restaurant? Was it while you were eating your meal? Was it after you'd been to all the other restaurants on the tour? And then when you're going through your notes, how do you make that call? Mm. So you and I talked about this quite a bit over the years is it usually is that one moment where it hits you that you know something's good mm-hmm. or that you know like this is in the the top 50 nominees or this is going to make it in the hot 10. And I think every meaningful thing in life like whether it's a relationship or I don't know something hits you or like I, I was like, like really curious where you were going with that. I, I was like know. seemed like some relationship advice was coming. Well, don't you remember the first like do you remember when you married your husband like that you were like, "Oh, I like this guy." Was there one moment well, n- <laughs> not really. I mean, like we've known each other since we were 14. It's sort of like a different thing, okay. you know? Well, I, there was this, for me, there was that one moment where my wife wor- walks into this restaurant that I was working at and I just uh, love it first sight, but I just saw her and then I, I taught her how to clean the espresso machine. Mm-hmm. That was our first kind of interaction. And I knew at that point that like I liked, I liked her. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so back to Nunsuch. I had had my first meal there. And by the way, this restaurant was pretty much empty. There was two other couples when I walked in. It seats about 22 people, kind of this U-shaped bar. And then I I ate my meal and I knew it was good. And then I kind of walked out and and, and the restaurant is just across from the federal building Memorial Mm -hmm. um, in Oklahoma City. And I was walking back to my hotel and I started going over all the dishes that I had. But there was this one dish. Um, it was kind of their ode to Dan Dan noodles, that kind of spicy um, sesame paste noodle um, mm-hmm. kind of Szechuan food. But instead of the traditional preparation, uh, they made handmade their noodles. They used like a pecan tahini. They had this kind of pesto-like thing that had fermented mustard greens And it was just this, like, it became this different dish, a dish that was an ode to an old dish, but it was this dish that was grounded in Oklahoma City ingredients, and it was completely original. And I think that was my realization that, like, this is this year's best new restaurant. There's a lot more stuff involved in it, Mm -hmm. but that was that moment where I was like, I don't think that these three guys, so there's three chefs at kind of almost equal partners in it, that they realize how good their food is Mm -hmm. you know they're kind of kind of a garage band playing to themselves you know and keeping their head down and the fact that there wasn't that many people in there and i've never had that you know when when we picked turkey and the wolf last year out of new orleans as number one that was a bold pick for us Mm -hmm. yeah it was a sandwich place but still it was in new orleans which is a culinary kind of you know one of the great culinary cities of the world and Mason, the chef there, had worked at a 
you know, some really nice places in New Orleans. So he had this background. So it wasn't that crazy. This one felt, even though the food is much more fine dining, it, it felt kind of weird. And I don't think the one thing I think I struggled that I worried that you would think and Adam would think <laughs> and, and the reader would think was I chose this place just because it was kind of in Oklahoma city. And that mm-hmm. was kind of an oddball pick for the sake of being odd. Mm-hmm. And as I say in the text, like it's that's not the case. I think if you had put this place in San Francisco or Chicago or New York or wherever, it still would have stood out. It made it all the more remarkable that it happened to be in Oklahoma City, where yeah. whereas one of the chefs said in Oklahoma City or in Oklahoma, our state dish is not not a not a not ranch dressing, but a side of ranch dressing. <laughs> that's what he said the state dish was. Yeah, I mean, I had the same thought just when I was reading through your text and looking through the photos of the menu there mm-hmm. and all the different dishes. And I was like, whoa, never seen that before. Like, yeah. it's not like it's, oh, this is great for Oklahoma City. It's like really cool and exciting for anyone who's yeah. looking at it. And, and I think one of the thrilling things, again, you and I have talked about this, is when, when we make the list and, and through the through the brand that is Bon Appetit and via Instagram and all we do digitally with it, is it's going to be amazing to watch what happens to this restaurant, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I think you would agree that's kind of one of the most amazing things. It makes, it's like a, I, I imagine it's like one day when our children go and graduate college or something. I don't know, you just, <laughs> you feel a certain amount of uh, like pride in the fact that, that we have the great job of being able to recognize places like this and put them up on a pedestal for what they deserve, you know? And I think that's awesome. Totally. And there's nothing more um, rewarding than when you go back to one of these restaurants and the chef comes out and it's like, hey, you know, like our business doubled, you know, four times after yeah. we're on your list. And, and that's, th- that's the power of, you know, not to pat ourselves on the back, but that's the power of the brand. And it didn't used to be that way, you know? Like I think we've done our darndest to make the list a respectful kind of well-researched and curated list and i think it's reflective of that so that's that's what i that's what makes me the most proud it's like yes i get to eat at all these amazing restaurants but to see the effect you know that kind of hot 10 the ba effect on a restaurant for good and it allows people to hire more people and to give people health insurance you know at restaurants and perhaps open up their second restaurant or third or whatever so i think that's that's the cool thing yeah and it seems i mean i I think in past years and and this year as well it also influences how we choose which restaurants are on the list like we're um most excited by restaurants well we tend we're often excited by restaurants that could use a little bit of championing yeah i think that that underdog kind of you know there's nothing wrong with uh, a great restaurant that a chef opens who already has a TV show or, you know, has 10 books or something. But I don't think our list is necessarily going to recognize those people because I think we want to help people out and, and find those stars of tomorrow or give that, that push that's needed. Um, and I also think, you know, something that we've talked about, and especially in 2018 is like, we want to, uh, support people who are good for the industry and, mm-hmm. and are, I think, what did we say last year? Like our non, or you were quoted in an ar- article, or you wrote an article for <laughs> Bon Appetit, you quoted yourself. <laughs> what was it? Like we have a no asshole policy? I think I said shitheads. But shitheads. I don't think we can say either of those things yes, on the podcast. Yes, you can. You can. 
yeah, um, minimizing <laughs> shitheads is our <laughs> restaurant policy at Bon Appetit. Can you talk about a place on the list that we refer to in-house as YGA because we keep code names for mm. all the restaurants so that the word does not get out? Yeah, you may ga arukara. So this gentleman, the chef there, has another place nearby that's only ramen. Mm-hmm. And actually, Emil Stanek, who's our in charge of basically our, our one of our platforms, he told me about this weird ramen place in Boston where if you finish the bowl of ramen, or how uh, you show them the bowl, and the, the, the more you finish, the more your dreams will come true, and the whole restaurant yells at you like, good job, or very good job, or awesome job. <laughs> anyway, it sounds weird, but it's actually kind of fun. Anyway, so I went, I noticed that they had opened this Udon place. And you know how I feel about Boston, Massachusetts. And I have no problem going on the record as <laughs> this, that I do not like Boston, Massachusetts as a restaurant destination. I think it's one of America's most beautiful cities. I think the sports teams suck and I hate everyone who roots for those sports teams. I'll go on the record and I don't care. But so I was walking around Boston, kind of, I'd just been to a cool record store in Cambridge and I was like, you know what, hell, I'm going to go to this place and give it a shot. And I walked by it like five times because it ends up that it's inside of it's inside of a university building. I don't even know the name of the university. And it's in like a food court. And it happens to be primarily an Asian food court. There's like a dumpling place. There's a ramen place. And it's it's like two rows of eight seats. And they have one dish on the menu and it's this homemade udon that comes with like shaved um beef and it has daikon in it um it has a little spring onion and you can either get it seasonally permitting you can get it hot or you can get it cold and i ate it and i was just like you know i've was it hot or cold on your? Oh, uh, I got both actually so i was <laughs> in that i was in that <laughs> i was in that sweet spot where during the summer they don't do the hot one. They just do the cold one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they switch it up. But I was there. So I did both. The cold one comes with like a light bonita stock. I think it has some shrimp in it too. The other one is a, actually a chicken broth because um, I was talking to the chef. And it's just, it, it's a, the, the term transporting restaurant is an overused term, but it mm-hmm. really did transport me back to Tokyo when you're sitting in kind of one of these train stations and having a, a, a bowl of noodles, something that's so simple and so rustic and, and relatively inexpensive. And it changes your life and it changes the way you look at a noodle. And that was what happened at this place, this Udon place. And so I, I walked out being like, am I going to do this? Like, am I going to, and I think I, I actually called you mm-hmm. while I was sitting. Cause I just went and bought some incense at this cool Japanese little trinket store. I love incense. So I was buying some incense mm-hmm. and I sat down on the thing. And I think I called you, or I was texting with you. And I was like, I just went to this really good Udon place. Um, and then I think on the train back, I was like, do I really want to put a Boston restaurant on the top? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so I did. And that that's a really funky, cool place that people have to go to. It's a reason to go to Boston. You just lost all of our Boston <laughs> listenership permanently. That's fine. They, they've won like 9,000 championships. They've got they've got themselves. That's, what, that's who they have. Um, so one of the things that you put together every year while you're on the road is... Um, well, you sort of keep a notebook of not just the restaurants that you eat at, but, you know, interesting ingredients and design trends and stuff that mm-hmm. you see 
on the road. What did you encounter this year that you hadn't seen before? I feel like every year when you make this trip, all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, how is steak tartare on every menu now? Like how is uni on every menu now? It's just like, it's almost like it happens overnight. Yeah, it's one of those things that we're lucky that we get that national perspective. Like you just think it's your town that everyone you know, two years ago had a fried chicken sandwich on it, you Mm -hmm. know, and then it's like, oh no, it's like, this is the Instagram era where one person does something and everybody, you know, the the wallpaper thing has been something that you and I have talked about. We've seen for several years, whether it was custom wallpaper or just funky, weird wallpaper. But this year it was, it was every, it seemed like every single restaurant whether it was in the dining room or in the bathroom, I was taking a picture of wallpaper mm-hmm. and it was grandma r- wallpaper. It was like these crazy floral patterns or there'd be like, you know, custom stuff with like rabbits eating flowers, you know, in the wallpaper or at Fico, They have their own wallpaper that has like figs and different fruits hidden in it. I guess it's a relatively inexpensive way to like put your mark on something. Mm-hmm. But it was mo- it was a lot of times it was in the bathrooms and... Everyone goes to the bathroom. Most people go to the bathroom in a restaurant at least once Mm -hmm. if you're there for two hours. And finally, restaurateurs have caught on that, like, why just have a room full of, like, white, you know, basic paint? And, you know, it's like if you go into dive bars, everyone writes on the wall because people like to look at stuff while they're in the bathroom, right? (laughs) You know, like all the messages or you're hanging up um, posters or whatever. And so, like, you walk in and I was always like, oh, what's this? What's this bathroom going to have? So it was, like, definitely that... That grandma wallpaper, which we feature in the in the magazine, yeah, um, and the places you can get them and the customized stuff. So it's really, I mean, I think Friedman's, which is in Los Angeles, another place on the Hot Ten. They have like seven different types of wallpaper. Some of it's you know vintage wallpaper, and some they had custom made. Um, do you want to talk really quickly about what Friedman's is? Yeah, so Friedman's is this kind of trippy. Jewish deli, which is owned by uh, siblings Jonah and Amanda Friedman, kind of in in his own words called it the black sheep of delis, mm-hmm. where you know you get latkes, but they're latkes that are pressed into a waffle iron and then frozen and then deep fried, so they're almost crispy, crunchy on the outside, and then almost like a baked potato, creamy or mashed potatoes, creamy on the inside. Yeah, or in the in the piece in the magazine, he says it's like a molten chocolate cake. Oh, right. Because yeah. it just kind of oozes out. So that was a cool place because just because he's taking all these like tropes and like kind of, um, you know, signs of a, a Jewish jelly and then it's just slightly tweaking it and making it this kind of fun club. And like there's expected stuff like brisket and, and matzo ball soup, but everything has that kind of cool little twist. And it was just uh, there's another kind of. A Jewish inspired deli in Portland, Maine called Rose Foods, which is one of the people who used to be at Palace Diner, which is in Biddeford, Maine, which is a great place too. But I, I just felt like those two places, like there's so much people going back and like redoing old style restaurants. And mm-hmm. sometimes they feel sticky and kind of just silly in a way. But both of those, I think, nailed that kind of like respect of the past and traditional foods, but then pushing it a little bit more and making it seem novel to, you know, people like me and people visiting. It was really exciting, those two places. Yeah. So speaking of Portland, Maine, you named Portland our restaurant city of the year. Right. Last year was Chicago. Right. It's like 
got to put a shout out for that. <laughs> so you and I actually both go up to Maine every summer. Um, although I think you've been probably going longer than I have. Yeah. We've obviously seen the Portland restaurant scene yeah. improve and just kind of go wild over the last couple of years. What happened this year? I mean, it just was like insane. I know. I mean, and, and you and I both long professed our love of, of Portland. A lot of it has to do probably because we're both on vacation when we're up there. So we're always in good moods. Yeah. It's but, the best place on earth. <laughs> but like I went to college there. I was married there and I go back every- You were married in Maine? Yeah, I was married in Maine. Where? Uh, just north of like um, Port Clyde area. Yeah. See, you're like a deep cut Mainer. I have no idea Port where Port Clyde is. Port very close is. to Round Pond. Oh, really? Yeah, it's very close. As the crow flies, it's probably a couple miles. <laughs> so I've long professed my love. And I think even in 2000, I want to say 2007, I named it the, pardon the phrase, foodiest small town in America. So was that a one-time no, no, thing? No, no, no. That was every no, no. year you named it? It was, I think we did it for four or five years. Oh. Yeah, so like Boulder won it one year. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Durham won it one year. It was a it was good in concept, but the, 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 well, whatever. Foodiest, we try to stay away from that. Anyway, so I've long been a fan of the scene, but I also th- always thought it was very singular and kind of monotonous. You know, you'd go up there and have your lobster roll and your you know your oysters, or it was just v- always very safe. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened this year between places like Izakaya Minato and which is a Japanese place or Kong Tu Bat, which is a kind of Vietnamese pho spot, or Drifter's Wife, which Drifter's Wife is in the top 10 this year. There just seems to be a certain amount of kind of eclectic and diversity of restaurants that is very compelling. And I don't re- think people in Portland actually realize how good they have it. They love to complain about restaurants there. Really? I don't think they realize, like, what's your favorite restaurant in Portland, Maine? Tandem Bakery, hands down. Hands down. And you said that, like, you would move to Portland, Maine just to be closer to Tandem. Yes. I went to Tandem four times last week when I was up in Maine. In a day, right? (laughs) No, no, no. Four (laughs) times over six days. But that's that's sometimes where, you know, some people criticize us for going in and doing this kind of helicopter tour of towns and getting in, eating in two days, and then leaving and making these grand, you know, proclamations about this is the best pizza in the world. And we're guilty of that sometimes. But also on the flip side, I think going into a city, having perspective about what else is going around the country and going and eating in that town, Tandem tandem Bakery, Drifter's Wife, Kong Tu Bat, Cheval, Little Giant, all these places that are in Portland, Maine, are great no matter where they are. Totally. And they just happen to be in this charming as hell little city that has 70,000 people that's like they have a restaurant for every single citizen in that. <laughs> and and I think sometimes people there, there's plenty of proponents of this local there. I'm not saying nobody gets it there. They do. But there's it's so great, the level of food there. And it just it becomes more and more diverse. The ingredients, obviously, that they get there are amazing. And I just think it's a, a charming as hell city. And I think also it's so accessible. You know, you can walk from one end to the town to the next in 45 minutes to an hour. And there's always something. So that's, I just love it there. And I just think this year it really knocked it out of the park with, you know, the new openings that it had. And and you put on, as as Alex Delaney, one of our colleagues, you throw in all these breweries and brew pubs they have leading the way. It's like this, I mean, they, there's a whole Suds tourism thing up there that people just go to drink beer. 
And one of the restaurants in the Hot Ten, as you mentioned, Drifter's Wife, yeah. um, is in Portland, Maine, and an amazing place to drink natural wine, but also a place that has sort of evolved over the last couple of years. So how did you decide to put it on the list this year? Yeah, I, I had been to Drifter's Wife. So it started out as a little funky, uh, Peter and Arinda Hale had moved from Brooklyn to, to Maine, that classic story of you know wanting to get out of the big city and a uh, better lifestyle. And they realized when they got up there, they were gonna open a, a cafe originally, but then they realized, well, they couldn't get a lot of these wines that they had fallen in love with in the New York restaurant scene. So, so they started to open up a wine store they are the reason that so many cool wine producers and wine importers now import into Maine hmm. because they ask them as favors, like, please, can we get your wine? So they opened up as a wine store. And then as Peter told me, the the wine was in the front of the store and you've been there and they have these big glass windows. Mm-hmm. Well, the sun was setting and it, and for hours it would just cook the wines. So they had to move the the wines into the back of the shop and so they had this open space in the front. They were like, well, hell, well, let's open a little cafe. And, and they convinced somebody, uh, uh, another couple from Brooklyn to move up and, and cook, Ben Jackson and his wife. So they had this place called Maine and Loire, which is the wine store. And then the front little, the little cafe was called Drifter's Wife. And I think they were popular. Um, I'm not sure people completely bought into it. Um, I was always a fan, um, but you know, they didn't have any gas. They just had a little kind of convection, little burner induction burners. And so earlier this year, they moved to the space next to them, which is huge. They expanded the shop and then they opened kind of a full, like the, we call it the accidental restaurant, this full fledged restaurant that had gas. And he makes some of the, you know, everyone talks about chicken under a brick being such a big restaurant dish this day. He does like a half chicken, that he puts under a brick and it's just like it's almost like fried chicken the skin is so crispy mm-hmm. and juicy and moist and i just think there's no you know not sound like a, a a jerk but like you know paris or tokyo or la or wherever there's no place i'd rather drink wine delicious natural kind of funky wines than than at drifter's wife same let's let's end the let's, podcast yeah. and go to maine <laughs> Can we move the magazine to Maine? <laughs> that would be good. I'm here. Okay, cool. Well, we've actually hit on a bunch of the places in the Hot Ten just over the course of this chat. You want to just run down really quick any of the ones we haven't talked through? Yes. Yeah, so a really cool place that I got on the BART train over to the over to Oakland to check out the the Fruitville Fruitvale station. You just said BART trained like my dad. Like BART, like, you know, like he's just like always really proud. He's like, yeah, I took the BART to visit it's your sister. It's called the BART. <laughs> I I will say I, I always get a level set of self satisfaction when I'm on the BART train to East Bay. I feel <laughs> that's like. what I'm sensing from right. you. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, so that one's Nyumbai, which is a Cambodian restaurant, which is an amazing story and it's beautifully told in the magazine. The short is the chef uh, owner basically went from a refugee in Thailand to the Bay Area, was a nurse, quit that job and opened up this kind of ode to her childhood and, and kind of taught me about Cambodian food, but it also opened her eyes to something, you know, her, a discovery of where she came from. So it's a, it's a, Delicious restaurant, but it's also a beautiful story. The Call, which in Denver, which I don't think, well, I know Denver's never been on our list. And this is kind of, I think we call this the the best all-day kind of long, boozy lunch spot. It's mm-hmm. th- They do all these little small plates, and 
I, I arrived at 11 and left at like 2 p.m. Um, so you can imagine how the rest of my day went after that. <laughs> That's a really fun place. We have Maidan, which is in Washington, D.C. A lot of these places, you've actually reported on the wood-burning oven and live-fire restaurants. And this one kind of takes the cake. It's just <laughs> like, it is the restaurant. You walk in and there's this like tower of flames and everything is kissed by the grill. Um, and it's an, in an old train depot too, which kind of adds to the allure of it. But really delicious, kind of Middle Eastern style Levant cuisine. Near my house, my, my old house in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. my old apartment is um, a place called Ugly Baby, which you, read, you wrote a good headline for that. The hottest restaurant in NYC is also literally the hottest. Yes. Thanks. And not, and not temperature-wise. That was a good headline. <laughs> it, it's not Northern Thai. It's kind of a regional Thai restaurant, but it is the most unapologetically pulls no punches, fiery, like chili heat restaurant I've ever been to. And it's like doing drugs. It's You take a bite of it and you're like, oh my God, I'm never doing that again. You put down your fork and be like, I'm not having another bite of, of that round eye curry. I'm not doing it. And then two seconds later, you're doing it again and you hate yourself for it. But then it just comes back and it's so delicious. It, it really messes with you. It okay. messes with me. Masochistic Thai food. Yes. We have Nimble Fish, which is in Portland, the other Portland, Portland, Oregon, which is a traditional... Edo style uh, sushi restaurant. And that's all just about the purity of the fish, beautifully executed knife skills, and just sitting at that sushi counter and having 20 pieces of sushi put in front of you, being told what fish it is. And it just takes you to this other. I'm one of those people who just love the idea of sushi and sitting down. And I love going to sushi places by myself and just nerding out and clean, delicious fish. But I will say, you know, uh, even though the, the Hot 10 gets a lot of the press, all these restaurants in the top 50 nominees that, that we pull the 10 plus are all, you know, um, amazing restaurants. I mean, you know, we go from, you know, 200 restaurants down to these 50 that we visit. Um, so I really feel it's like the cream of the cream of the crop. Totally. And this is a good year, I think. I mean, yeah. I feel like there were... A lot of good restaurants. It's good. Things. You know, it's 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 a diverse list geographically. I think the food is representative of what's going on. You know, again, it's it's things are just very casual in the United States right now. And the, I think the best food for the best price is, are these places like Yume in Boston and Nyambai in in the Bay Area, and even a place like Nunsuch, Number one, it's it's certainly you could call it tweezer food or that Nordic style food, but you get. 10 plus courses, 10 to 12 courses for $65. I mean, that's that's a better deal than most places, you know, that people pay a lot more for. So. Yeah. All right. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Now you're free to move to Austin, Texas. I'm ready. <laughs> Bring on the tacos and the barbecue. Thank you, Julia. Bye. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.